Anna and Amy. Hello, Vicky. How are you? Good. Pretty good. Yes. Excellent. Welcome to the podcast. Thank I've been you. I've been I've been meaning to get you on together for a long time now. And you know, just trying to organize people's schedules is not always easy. I know it, Amy, you're uh, kind of doing a lot of work. So it's difficult to get you on sometimes. Yes, it is. I'm very busy at work, so it's kind of hard, you know, and because of the time change, time difference, yeah. it makes it a little bit tougher. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, so I'm glad to be here today. So much. Yeah, it's, it's really nice to have you on. So just just for the listeners, you two both live in Florida, USA, don't you? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, not too far from Orlando. We're about an hour east of Orlando. We live on the Space Coast. We're right on the east coast of Florida, midway down. Near um, Cape Kennedy and uh, um, yeah. the, all the rocketry. Yes, indeed. So, Amy, you, you actually work at uh, Kennedy Space Center, don't you? That's correct. I you work. The most exciting job of all the people I know, I think. <laughs> My job is just a regular kind of job. I just happen to do it at a pretty exciting place. I work for a contractor who does contracts works to NASA. Yeah. And we provide support for the ground support for doing their launches. And me in particular, I'm responsible for all the fire protection systems on the mobile launcher. I'm a fire suppression engineer. And the mobile launcher is what carries the rocket out to the pad to launch and it has a bunch of fire suppression systems on it and I have to make sure they're all in perfect working order before launch and in addition to that I provide support during a launch I'll be manning a console or womaning a console I should say anyway <laughs> the console I'll be monitoring all the systems to make sure that everything on the you know on the ground systems are ready to support the launch so it's the work is basic, you know, fire protection work, but I just do it at a really cool place. And have you have you worked in the kind of aerospace business all your life? No, I have not. I was a um, I was in the private sector. I'm a fire protection contractor, um, licensed contractor, and I've worked with several different companies in the state of Florida doing construction. And okay. I've done some construction out at Kennedy Space Center. Um, but I, I had not worked directly for Kennedy Space Center. And as it turns out, last October, a little over a year ago, um, due to the COVID situation, the contractor I was working for uh, laid me off because they just ran out of work. A lot of construction stopped around here. Yeah. So yeah. they laid me off. And at that time, I made a decision that I was not going to be in a contractor anymore. I wanted to work in the aerospace industry. So I began my search actively to find a position, uh, either supporting aerospace at Kennedy Space Center or, or some of the other aerospace companies around here. And I got really lucky and landed a job at Kennedy Space Center. Um, so I started in February. So I've only been there a, a few months, but it's really exciting to be there and be a part of it. So are you involved in all the companies that work there when they're launching, or is it just certain NASA projects that you work for. So you are you involved I, with SpaceX as well or not? Okay, our company supports some of the SpaceX launches because 
the way case the Kennedy Space Center works is a multi-user spaceport is what they call it. So right. NASA provides launch support services for SpaceX and ULA and Boeing and Blue Origins. And my company provides some support for SpaceX. Me personally, I have not, um, well, in an indirect way, I'm supporting some of the SpaceX launches, but I've been assigned to the Artemis program. That's the NASA's program to put people back on the moon. So most of my time is dedicated to that. But I'm also, I also support um, some Boeing operations. They have, Boeing has a facility on site that I'm doing some support work for them too. So it's not just NASA, I'm doing some oh, other so people. It's a, but quite a varied, varied, varied yes. projects that you're working on there. And isn't, isn't uh -huh. there also a US Air Force base in the area as well? Kennedy the... Space Center butts right up next to um, Cape Canaveral Air Force, uh, Space Force Station. It's not Space Force, not Space Force. Air Force anymore. <laughs> Wasn't that a Trumpism, Space Force? Yeah, it's Space Force. They have the Space Force. <laughs> <laughs> they have special uniforms and helmets. <laughs> but um, Kennedy Space Center and the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station uh, adjoin on the peninsula. And um, a lot of our operations are supporting the Space Force thing. And, and we share between the Space Force and NASA, they share resources. Like the Space Force does all the weather uh, monitoring for launches. Yeah. So, and I go over to the Space Force side. I mean, it's, we're connected. So I drive over there all the time and do stuff. So, well, yeah. fascinating job, really. And I, there was one time you were on Team Coffee and you actually showed us a live rocket launch, videoed it, didn't you, whilst, we were, whilst you were on? which was really exciting to watch. You've shown yourself around the vehicle assembly building right. in the background. Mm -hmm. And then there was one oh, was time it, where- Was it you, the, the, the live rocket? Yes, there was yes, a live yes. launch of a SpaceX. Yeah, but um, we've, seen, and, we've seen Amy on site live. Mm -hmm. on and yeah. and I, I just took the webcam and pointed it out my window and you all saw the, the rocket going yes, up. So. We are living in a location where it's very easy to. Well, you can uh, go into your backyard and watch rockets launch up. Yeah, correct. It's exciting, isn't yes. it? We walk down the end of the block, and there's the Banana River right there. And because the river's there, we get a real clear view of where the launch where the launch pads are. So we get a great view from our neighborhood. Yeah. And have you seen any crazy wildlife around the the site? Because I know it's a it's a nature reserve too, isn't it? Yes, the Kennedy Space Center is located at the uh, Merritt Island National Wildlife Preserve. And uh, there's all kinds of wildlife there. I've seen gators. Um, let's see, the other day I, had to, I was driving home and I had to slow down because there was a group of wild boar crossing the road. Um, there's uh, an eagle's nest there on Kennedy's uh, causeway, right on the base that the eagle's nest has been over been there for over 50 years and the eagles keep coming back and using this nest wow. um, Amazing. so yes gators wild boar turkey all kinds of predator birds uh tortoises you name it it's on the base uh, and tourists we, too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah tourists <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. feed them to the uh, alligators as many uk tourists recently uh yeah no, I mean, it's probably been a bit quiet touristy-wise, hasn't it, recently, with COVID and everything? 
it, it, the international tourism coming through Florida has dropped off quite a bit and they're starting to pick up a little bit, but still it's tough. Yeah. And, and Anne, you, you used to be a US diplomat. Yes. Um, so how much of, how much of that can you tell us? Quite a bit. Um, I, uh, actually on the, on the space side, um, I was interning at the NASA jet propulsion laboratory in Pasadena, California, oh, wow. while I was, uh, uh, getting my degree from the California Institute of Technology. I, they asked me to stay, but for some reason, I wanted to go to the Pacific Northwest, so I worked for Boeing for over three years. Didn't find it overly enjoyable. So you were up then, in Seattle, were you? Yes, the Seattle area. And then somebody brought in this newspaper clipping that said, see the world, and you don't have to shoot at anybody. And I said, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. So what they were looking for were um, engineers uh, to join the US Department of State to um, work on the security systems for embassies and consulates around the world. So uh, I took them up on it and uh, we moved to uh, the Washington DC area. And then um, we, I've had a number of uh, assignments abroad and traveled abroad for, for various trips. And uh, after 30, about just about 30 years, I retired in 2018. So you've, you've done some extensive traveling around Europe, I would assume. Yes, I, I lived mostly in Europe. My first tour was in um, New Delhi, India um, for a couple of years, and then uh, briefly in Sofia, Bulgaria, um, then uh, Helsinki, Finland, uh, Athens, Greece, and then Frankfurt, Germany. So, um, wow. And again, traveling amongst uh, various countries in between. I have I've had a number of lovely visits to the UK and um, interfacing with uh, the, my colleagues uh, in, the, in the UK government, uh, the Foreign and Commercial Office mainly. And then you retired from doing that and, and you're now self-employed as a, yes, uh, an engineer, I, aren't you? Yes, I retired um, in 2018. I'd been consulting uh, with a small company named uh, Adafruit Industries in Manhattan for a bit. I picked up uh, work in electrical engineering and they, uh, they helped connect me with uh, um, make, um, Maker Media and I wrote a couple books on their on Adafruit products and um, Adafruit offered me a job and I could hardly say no. So uh, um, I've been with them since 2018. I'm, I work remotely so I can uh, work anywhere. I worked in my home in the DC area and then uh, I moved down here in 2020. 2020, really, it's, it's <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. And you've recently and, uh, had some publications in a in a some kind of trade magazine. Yes. Um, so um, I'm known a bit in the maker industry. I've been interviewed uh, a couple times, um, 
and uh, the UK magazine Hackspace, which is published by uh, the Raspberry Pi um, Publishing. And on one of their arms, their publishing arms, uh, interviewed me uh, for their November issue. And uh, it was lovely talking to them about electronics and uh, being a diplomat and the whole kind of sphere of mixing up the fact that you don't have to be a uh, boffin in a basement all the time. You can kind of be a regular person and yeah. do STEM type stuff. Also. You should give me the link to where where it's published, and I can I can add it into the description of the podcast later. So if people want to read, if people want to read it, so yes, it's how, online. It's free PDF. Okay, yeah, send me the link, and I'll I'll sort that out. So. One question I've always wanted to ask was, how did you two meet? And when did you meet? <laughs> Is it a long story? <laughs> well, no, it's not that long. I mean, uh, we were, um, we'd both gone on to Twitter um, as part of finding information about um, uh, being trans. I had, I had had a, a Twitter account since about 2012, uh, but then early 2018, I started connecting with the trans Twitter community on Twitter and uh, started meeting some folks and some, making some real nice connections and, and learning a lot because that's where I was you know, interface, interfacing with people. And then Anne and I started uh, communicating on Twitter as well. Uh, we became mutuals and that would be late 2018, I believe. Yes. So, and uh, we, you know, joked around quite a bit. In fact, there were some famous uh, joke threads, I guess, that went on there for a while that we both participated in. But we found through just regular, you know, kind of interfacing and stuff that we had a fair number of things in common as far as how families perceived uh, uh, people and. Uh, um, mutual interests and that type of thing. Well, in addition to that, um, my first wife had been diagnosed with cancer and she was given six months to live. And so I was her caregiver as she was um, dying of cancer. And um, that was about the same time. And Anne became a real wonderful friend in supporting me because it was, it's very hard to watch somebody die of yeah, cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She was an incredible support to me, incredible friend to be that. Well, I had a bit of experience being a 27-year cancer survivor. I'm going on 28 years myself. Um, no. That's the, the second time, I believe, visiting London. I, I visited London for my first time in 1989. And the second time it was 19 or early 1994 when I'd been not feeling well. So I was flown from Sofia, Bulgaria to London for tests. And eventually the doctors found out I had advanced cancer. So, But with her experience, she was very supportive of me and we developed a real strong bond of friendship. Yeah. On, on Twitter, just talking on Twitter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I blossomed into a relationship. Well, it 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 was a, quite a number of months. I mean, uh, 
I was uh, um, having issues in my life and Amy was uh, helping. Um, she, um, for example, I will go into a little bit more about um, our transition processes, yeah. but like the first time that I went to an endocrinologist to um, see about hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. And Amy volunteered. She helped me kind of decide on an outfit. Mm -hmm. And she was on Twitter. We were DMing the whole time that she was going to her endocrinologist. You know, when she got there and waited in the lobby and all that, we're DMing back and forth. <laughs> and, that, and that encouragement really helped because uh, I didn't have anyone else um, there with me. And uh, it, it was kind of a virtual hand holding and and you're going to be okay and and we were i was joking about the the doctor having a big bowl <laughs> of hrt in the waiting room just so you could uh, you know have some or something and uh, that's a good idea actually and I, was just, I was just honored that she she allowed me to go with her on her journey to go see the endocrinologist and get started so mm -hmm. i felt really connected to that yeah. that to me that she trusted me enough to take me along with her on on that yeah. trip and so um my first marriage was crumbling and uh amy was providing support and she was more perceptive than me that the signs were pointing in a in a non-desirable direction but uh, once my marriage um collapsed um I realized that uh, Amy was somebody special in my life, but it it was um, it was November of twenty. Well, let's back up a bit. Yeah, let's start where that came from. The trips. Came oh, okay, from. sure. Um, and this is kind of a circuitous thing. Uh, um, as my wife was, my first wife was ill and and close to passing, I had some conversation with you, with her about her life and, and her regrets. Did she have any regrets in life? And she um, said that uh, she had regretted that she didn't get to visit some of the places around the country that she had always wanted to see. Yeah. And so she tasked me to go visit those places for her. Oh, wow. And we came up with four different locations that I, I uh, promised I would fit and visit for her. And one of those was in Washington, D.C. Now, I had been to D.C. As, as a teenager, but I'd never, it'd been a long time, and, and my first wife had never been to D.C. So I had, this was mid-19, somewhere around then. I have, was thinking of making trips to go see these places. And I still have some on my list that I need to go to. But I thought I would do it and meet some of my Twitter mutuals, people that I'd made friends with on yeah. Twitter. And and was one of them. And I reached out to her and I, you know, as in our conversations, I said, I want to come to DC as part of my obligation to my first wife, and I would like to see you. All right. So and Anne was still yeah. living up in DC at this time. And she was living in Washington yeah, just, for the first time. Yeah. Well, we had originally planned the trip for one time and 
we determined it would probably not be a good time to do that um, for her situation. So we kind of postponed it and then you take off from there. Okay. Well, Amy was working on finding a, um, a surgeon for her um, uh, gender confirmation surgery. And I said, I would, that's something I was interested in also. Mm -hmm. And we were both looking um, in roughly the same geographic area, although there are some good doctors in many different places in the United States. And some people go abroad, um, just like they do in the UK. Yeah. Um, we had, uh, we we'd both kind of focused on um, Dr. Keely McPhee and Durham, North Carolina. And um, I was not as far along in my journey as Amy and Amy um, had, had looked into Dr. McPhee and actually looked at make a, a, a set of consultation with, with her. Mm -hmm. and, and in that process, after, after that process, um, I, I had that interest in, in doing so myself, but I thought, and it was fairly close to Washington. So I asked Amy, being a, a bit on the forward side, <laughs> could I, may, might I come to Durham and, and uh, be there as a, as a emotional support person while, while she was, was having her surgery? Um, as, as her friend. And, and the, the uh, secondary thing would be that I'd know more about the process and, and the surgeon, and uh, it might benefit my transition too. And? Well, so I had scheduled for the, uh, uh, scheduled my surgery for January of 2020. And um, so like, later in 2019 and asked if she could accompany me, you know, because, and we can talk about this later when we talk about transition, medical transition, but I would have to stay in Raleigh-Durham for a week, a week, no, close to two weeks before I could come home. And I was going by myself um, to travel there, have the surgery and then come back. And Anne had asked me if she could come visit me there while I was staying. I would be staying in a local hotel recovering. And I agreed to that. And I said, well, I was totally stunned that somebody would want to give up their time and come stay with me while I was recovering. I was, I was just like, she really wants to do that? And so um, she was planning on doing that. And I guess, what was it, October or thereabouts? She, she contacted me and she said, well, I would really like to meet you in person before we meet in January. And she asked if she could come to Florida and visit me for a weekend, just to introduce each other as, yeah. as friends. And we've got to be friends over the internet. And uh, actually there was, there had been a hurricane. Oh, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> and she had uh, packed up her belongings in her car and, and dr driven to a safer place. And mm -hmm. I was on the phone with her uh, trying to. Uh, that was our first sure. phone call when, yeah. because, you know, we live in an area that's prone to flooding and hurricanes. You evacuate. I mean, that's just yeah, what yeah. you do. I, I remember. And I'd uh, driven inland. 
and well, you worked in Miami, you know what it's like. Yeah, I mean, so. 2015, uh, 2005, there was loads of hurricanes down in the Miami yes. area. Yeah, it was, yeah. So, so I, I was on the phone with her during we then, up the so. first phone call that we had was, uh, you know, hanging out in the hotel, doing nothing, wait, waiting for the hurricane to go by. And, but, you know, so yeah, I mean, um, they don't, they don't go by in an afternoon, do they? They take like several days to kind of <laughs> go through. Take time. With Amy um, not having, uh, not able to, to come to the Washington area at that time, uh, earlier in the year, um, I thought I'd just come for a weekend and uh, we'd get to know each other. And uh, she said, you know, let's, we, there's lots of good food here. And, uh, and, you know, I said, fine. So I, I booked a flight and came down here and it was a wonderful weekend. Well, I offered at, at the time, you know, I was living alone in a three bedroom house and I offered for her instead of getting a hotel to stay in our spare bedroom. And so she did, and we just had a delightful weekend. Picked her up on the airport on Friday, and then we spent the weekend together, you know, going to brunch, doing some shopping and things like that. Yeah, bought a dress. And, uh, and well, the fun part about that is that, okay, I had been living openly, completely as myself for over a year at that time. So I'm totally out and about as Amy, that's yeah. the whole thing. But Anne was very new and being full time. And so we spent the weekend together and she was able to be herself full time for the entire weekend, going out to restaurants, going shopping, going having some fun. And that was so, so much fun to see her happy and enjoying. Yeah. But we talked about, you know, it was it's really good to have like a in our case a a wing girl a mm -hmm. a yeah. another person really. to go shopping and out with so it helps you feel more comfortable yeah um, being out and about and that was kind of that trip is that uh i'd only um been full-time less than a month mm -hmm. and um I was, she was my wing girl for being more in society. And I was kind of her wing girl and, and doing like shopping. And we mm -hmm. went to a, a shop and, and, uh, you know, I found a dress and we were, we were trying on dresses and, and, uh, Amy was talking to the associate about, uh, a few things. And, uh, we were trying to pick out an outfit for my Christmas party and she was helping me out you know, for my company Christmas party. So it was, it was just a really nice thing. And then, um, then that Sunday morning, Amy, you were, what were you doing that Sunday morning? Oh, oh, that was a cool thing. No, that happened on Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Yeah. yeah and, and the amazing thing was, and I keep forgetting this, that this happened at the same weekend, is I was signing the closing documents buying my house, mm -hmm. the house that we're in right now. I was yeah. renting the house and I had um, made arrangements with the, the park to buy the house. So that Saturday morning when Ann was here, I took a half an hour thereabouts and went across the street to the um, office, the manager's office. We sat down signing our closing paper. And that was, that was a pretty amazing day for me as well, because me, a trans woman, buying a house openly as myself. And 
yeah. completely overshadowed by Anne's visit. <laughs> but <laughs> if, no, not at all. It was it was just part of the experience. And then uh, um, that evening, you made your world famous trans tacos. <laughs> Um, which she's bragged about on Twitter, um, homemade uh, them, tacos, you know, everything's homemade the, the, from the, uh, the tortillas tort and everything. Yeah. And uh, we had a friend uh, in Australia on uh, via Skype <coughs> and Amy was discussing the process of making them so they could uh, uh, know uh, something about this. So it was kind of a, um, uh celebration uh of everything and then yeah. that food was so good and then the next morning um we went to brunch uh down um uh, down south of here a little ways and we were all dressed up and uh we had a, a just a very lovely time mm -hmm. and uh a friend of amy's this is funny um <laughs> This is funny how how the story goes together. Can I share this? Please. Okay. Um, I have been working with the therapist, and I know I'm kind of going way around the bounds and all this, but I'd been working for with a therapist for several years, um, who helped me through my transition and everything. Yeah. And um, I had. I had a mala, which is uh, a Buddhist prayer necklace, and it had broken. And I was in my therapist's office when it broke. It just came apart and dumped everywhere. And she volunteered to fix it for me. And she said, well, I do some jewelry making on the side. I said, that's wonderful. So I gave it to her. She did that. <laughs> and I was telling the story to Anne. And Anne said, well, I have some old family heirloom pieces that are just ugly and I like to have them remade could my friend therapist do that so we had she sent all the stuff to my therapist and my therapist re, you know worked with Ann to figure out what to how to remake them so that morning that Sunday morning when Ann was visiting here um we were at brunch and that was near to where my therapist lives. And so she came and met us to give the jewelry back to Anne, finished product back to Anne. Mm -hmm. So it, it was it was very good timing. It was a very uh, a wonderful experience to uh, to have brunch and all kind of decked out. And uh, even somebody in the parking lot said we looked rather nice. It was very affirming. <laughs> And then I had this new jewelry that uh, her therapist had had made on my behalf, and uh, it was wonderful. But then when brunch concluded, uh, it was just about time for me to uh, come back and pack. Drove her back up. to the airport in Orlando, and she had to, you know leave and go home. So, mm -hmm. but it was a nice, friendly visit. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing listening to your story and how you know how you kind of supported each other. It's really, it's really nice to hear, you know, and, the things you've been you saying. Know, the, it's it's the, great to have that, you know, that other person that you can do those things with, you know, to help you, you know, come through trend, kind of come out and, well, and go had do your shopping locally. and all that kind of stuff together. It's really nice to hear. Yeah, I'd had a, some friends locally in Wash in the Washington area. We'd done some uh, dinners at a local diner, but I didn't have somebody 
like Amy to, you know, just go about, you know, restaurants and shopping and that kind of thing <laughs> until I'd actually come down here. And it, it was just wonderful. And she dropped me off at the airport, you know, quick hug. And it was like, you know, I was, I was rather sad that I had to, uh, to go back because we'd had such a lovely time, but um, not a horrendously long after that, my marriage had, had collapsed completely. And, and um, Amy and I, uh, a bit after that, realized that maybe our friendship was a little bit more than a friendship. Yeah. So we explored that over time. And, uh, and can I tell the other part with Pam? Sure. Okay. Um, so as Ann mentioned, uh, a while after her visit, we realized in communicating DMs, talking on the telephone and everything, we realized that there was something more there and it was more of a spark. And yeah. um, she, of course, was the one that said, said it first. And then I realized, oh my God, something's happening here. And I was just totally freaking out about it. And you were, you were still a widow. I mean, I, yes, I was a widow and I, you know, I had um, it wasn't that long before that my first wife, you know, had, had passed. Yeah. Um, but so after we had our initial conversation about it, I texted my therapist because I was like, kind of like freaking out about this whole thing. I didn't think that I'd be falling in love with anybody or anything like that, but I was realizing I was. And I texted my therapist and I said, I need an appointment with you pretty quick. <laughs> And she said, and she said, well, let me check my calendar. And I, I responded back to her. I said, it's not anything bad. In fact, it's something really good. And the pause about five minutes and she texted back to me. She said, who is she? <laughs> but she pretty much knew who she was because she had met me. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and she had, you know. I, ha I hate to say it, but I mean, she had seen how well we had interacted. We, she we figured it all out way, way before. Oh, she saw the sparks long before. I mean, <laughs> we, you know, we, we were enamored of each other, but we'd still been friends when I visited. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And that's, that's my therapist had guessed the fact that it was Anne and, but she could see the connection when we had, even though we were just as friends. Yeah having brunch and all that but she saw the chemistry between us and and my therapist was like yeah there's definitely chemistry you can i could see it yeah and, uh, that was so much it was funny though <laughs> come on therapist was who is she and i said i responded back to her um that's a really dad, good therapist you know she knows what's going on before you do it's like yes yeah yeah she's good so um that's that, how we met, and that's how our relationship. Yeah. And then, you've more more recently, you've actually become engaged, haven't you? Yes, um, we announced our engagement last month. Last month, right? November yeah. or October? Did, I can't remember. Yeah, well, I know I, it was very recently because you. Yes, you know, in, you told in the last couple months, uh, we we did uh, uh, simultaneous Twitter um posts letting the world know after we had talked about um to our our close family and and uh 
and yes, that we had asked each other mm -hmm. to to be uh, our wives. So, so, so when is the wedding? The big question. And that's a big question. We we're maybe saying next, maybe the year after. No, we're thinking about springtime. Spring. Come on. Uh, there's a there's things that are coming into play here because of my work at uh, the Kennedy Space Center, um, they're predicting launch sometime in the spring. And when when the launch happens, I am I will have several 24 hour days of being on duty there to support the launch. So I, it's kind of hard for me to plan. You've got to, you've got to squeeze the wedding in between launches. And, <laughs> yes. and we have a house being delivered. Yes. Yeah, and you're, you're buying a new house too. Well, you, you've bought yeah. one of the, you bought a piece of land, haven't you? And you're having a house. Well, a we have, we've, house leased, we've leased a piece of land, a definite yeah. piece of land here, uh, just actually uh, very close by to this one. Yeah. And uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, we signed the closing papers. Congratulations. A, a, a brand new um, home to be delivered in March. Uh, Holy cow, I just realized I'm, I'm a oh. homeowner for two homes. You are. You <laughs> Currently on paper, you own, I have two homes. you own one home <laughs> and you co-own a second home. So uh, you are quite the uh, real estate mogul. Well, just don't know me. Yeah, so, you know, just, just to note, it's very easy to get from the UK to Orlando, you know, so... You know, we could probably fill a plane full of guests, no problem. Well, we love it. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, the, yes, there will be a number of invitations to um, friends and family, and some of those will be in the UK. Um, the, we, as of late March, probably in, into April, we, we will have a guest room once again, because Amy's guest room, this room. Well, you'll have two houses, room won't you? I right stayed now. in. Um, but that guest room, once I moved in, um, this is your office this, now. Yeah, this is an office. So if, you, so if you've moved into the new one in March, you, you're still going to have uh, the house you're in yes. now, you know, for the for the guest yes. accommodation. We could yeah, we could keep that. Yeah, huh? we could keep the house a bit longer mm -hmm. instead of selling. Amy had planned to sell it, but we could keep it a longer as a a big flop house for, <laughs> yeah, for, for all guests the guests. <laughs> The transient trans flop house. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> and and have the wedding as long as the NASA part uh, worked out, you know. So we're trying to gauge all those things that are coming up to be able to set a date. And so you've got a lot of things things that need to come together. Yes, that, that is true. Okay, so let's just let's just wind the clock back several years. I was I was wondering if you could both just talk about your you know your transition when you first realized that you were transgender and how it all kind of came about for you and how you know how you realized what was going on in your lives so who who wants to go first um i guess i will go first um you're in the hot seat uh, yeah it is kind of a hot seat because i don't haven't told very many people at all but uh, i'd have feelings i couldn't know about for for an extremely long time uh very earlier in my life but as being women of an older age um back when we were young and uh uh 
there were people called hippies and a, a, a war going on in Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. Never do a land war in Asia. That, that's, <laughs> that's a gauge. Um, that uh, there weren't words or for how the, the word trans being yeah. transgender was not coined yet. No. And uh, so um, having, having feelings and stuff was not, there was no frame of reference. I mean, there were, you know, um, some comedians on television that did drag and stuff, but. Uh, so how, many, how many decades are we going back here? The 60s. 60s, okay. Maybe the 70s. Just, just feelings, but I mean, it wasn't until later that uh, um, I had feelings and I uh, tried on uh, women's clothing and you know said hey this isn't too bad but in the meantime you know i was um i was going through college and i got married late in college to a uh, very nice person and you know i i got my job being a diplomat and uh we had a, a couple of children and it, it just remained at that this kind of uh maybe every now and then trying on some clothing and 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 that but also um being a bit tech savvy i could look on the the internet as as it became more uh prevalent and kind of see what others were doing but uh i i mostly kept it at bay until um the i don't know 20 well, it was, I'll put it this way. It was 2018. I had retired and I'd started uh, work as a consultant and I'd been on Twitter by then for, a, well, wait, no, I, well, I'd been on, I'd been on Twitter for a, a bit longer too. Um, my poor dog. Yeah. Is that Bowie the dog I can hear? Yeah, Bowie. Bowie. <laughs> okay. Okay, so um, I, I decided to create a, uh, well, let me get the, the timeline straight. Um, I'd been seeing more information on the internet and, you know, there it really kind of struck me when somebody um, posted, if you want to be a girl, you can just be a girl. Now, I'm, that's not very inclusive in the trans community, but um, being um, assigned male at birth and somebody just saying, well, if if you want to be something, you can just do it, yep. was, was kind of a heady thing. Um, and so, It was, let's see, it was about four months after I had retired and started the other job. And I was thinking of just, you know, same, same, but I'd become more and more conflicted about things as I, uh, as I read things and searched my feelings. And one day in uh, July of 2018, I just couldn't 
get my thoughts together and I was having a real hard time. And uh, my spouse at the time said, what's wrong? And I said, I think I want to transition. I think I'm transgender. And she said, I don't think you know what that word means. I go, I think I do. I'd, I'd been reading and, and absorbing information for quite a while. Um, and so I started reading some books. Uh, Amanda Knox's uh, book was uh, very helpful in kind of defining um, a assigned male at birth person looking to transition while they still had um, a spouse and children, for example. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I, I said, well, um, I probably need to go to therapy um, to, to explore this. So I started therapy um, that late that August. So it was July, month, month and a half. And through therapy, it was confirmed that uh, I indeed had had those feelings and that I was transgender and that um, I made a firm decision that uh, I wished to uh, transition. Yeah, so, so, so during, during the years when you were, you know, like childhood, teenage years, up until 2018, was everything kind of completely suppressed for you? You were... Not completely. You're kind of I denying, mean, you're de denying your own kind of. I don't want to use right. a phrase that might put some people in the transgender community off, but uh, um, I wore some women's clothes. I had some, but I basically had to kind of suppress that. Um, I yeah. did not have an approving spouse. Um, and, um, and again, that a lot, I think fair number of people do this they look at their lives and go well how's my life going to change am i yeah. going to be able to maintain my marriage which i i did right up until the end um will this put off my my family my immediate family my extended family how would it affect my uh my work you know the, yeah um so it's the great unknown isn't it it's all these like what's going to happen to me if i start telling people that i'm transgender Yes. So I had, I'd suppress, you know, thinking about um, going further, but then uh, changing careers probably eased things. Now, um, I've been accused of knowing that I retired and, and changed careers, knowing that I wanted to transition. And that's not true. Um, I My career had wound up and I had an excellent opportunity with uh, the people I contract with, and and that is the sole reason I uh, changed careers. Um, mm -hmm. But it also freed me up, um, both having children um, leave the nest, so to speak, yeah. and have some uh, level of financial stability. Um, it it changed the calculus of yes, those things how definitely. one might decide to make to transition. And I think that that generality can be true for a lot of older transitioners in that uh, that 
circumstances when they're older are, are a bit different. And again, the information available. Well, to... I think it's, you know, it really has to be the right time for the individual, doesn't it? Based yes, on your circumstances and, and what's going on in your life, you know? Yes. So it's very hard to generalize other than to provide support to others. And uh, Amy and I are very careful to uh, often say that um, when we're on Twitter or talking to somebody, these are our experiences, my experience, Amy's experience, our experience possibly together, but that they, we are not telling anybody um, no, what absolutely. their experience should be, um, because it is, as you say, it is so... Your personal story. Exactly. So what about you, Amy? I, I call myself a late bloomer because I didn't know for so many years. Um, starting from the beginning, I was born into a Latin family. My father's Cuban and I was named after him and my grandfather. So I was the third. So you were um, born in Cuba. I was born in Cuba. Yes. Um, and from the get-go i was the only male-born person in my family of my siblings plus the extended family that was going to carry on the surname the family name my family name is rare rarer than rare um in fact i've done searches in the united states and the only people that have that name are my direct extended relatives so I, it, I knew from a very early age that I was going to grow up and have children and have a son who was going to carry on the name. And I was going to grow up to be like my father and be an engineer and do what he did. Okay. And so this was, is very much part of the Cuban culture, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there was, there's a heavy patriarchal culture of everything. I have three older sisters. And the way my older sisters were raised compared to the way I was raised being the, you know, the male born child, mm -hmm. it, it was completely different. And so very patriarchal structure. Um, probably a lot of pressure on you to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huge weight. Yeah. And. Um, but growing up, I always felt different. I, I felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't fit, you know, with this is part of my origin story, but, you know, I talk about how I don't didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I was like other the kids I played with or people I went to school with. Yeah, yeah I got along with everybody, but I didn't feel like I really fit with anything. Um, but I followed the path of what I was supposed to do, went to school, and, uh, met a woman, got married and raised four kids. Um, and pursued my career and had a pretty good career. Um, so how old were you when you came over to the US? Uh, I was a year old when I came to the US. One year? One year old, yes. Oh, wow, really? Baby, still a baby? I guess I was a baby. As far as I have no, I had no, no memory of living there. No, none at all. So um, yeah, when Castro rose to power in late 59, I was born in 59. Um, and we left in 60 before he closed down the country. So um, my sisters are older than me. My mother is an American citizen. Just quick short how we got out of the country. Um, my so this father- was a bit the, the, like the very early 
kind of group of people who left Cuba at the time Castro yes. came in. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. My father was able to leave because he was uh, doing business with a lot of American companies. His, he was running a um, factory and he was doing a lot of work with country companies in the US. So he set up a business trip and got permission to leave the country on a business trip. And he left with a suitcase of clothes, suitcase of papers and five bucks in his pocket. But he walked into a job here at a chemical factory here. Right. My mother was an American citizen, so they couldn't hold her back. And several months later, she, what she could carry, the four kids, she brought them and left the country, and that was it. Yeah. So, but anyway, back to my origin story. I did all the stuff I was expected to do: raise a family, blah blah blah, have the career, all that sort of thing. My kids grew up, moved out of the house, and it was just my wife and myself at the time. Um. In about 2008, everything was falling apart. My marriage crashed. Um, my business crashed. I lost just about everything. And, and the, uh, this was the housing crash. And it really, you know, I had no idea what to do. I was, so 2008 is when all the property prices plummeted, yeah. wasn't it? Yes. All that was plummeting. And I was in a role in my career where I had no business being. You know, because I was doing what everybody expected me to do, mm -hmm. but I was doing a job that I wasn't suited to do. Yeah. And so everything about my life just fell apart, you know, and, and everything, the con as I say, the construct of my life collapsed and my wife left me and uh, there I was all by myself living in an apartment. It's the first time, you know, we got married when I was 20. So I'd never lived alone, really. And there I was living by myself. And all these thoughts and feelings started coming out of nowhere. And I started exploring wearing women's clothing and feminizing myself. And, and this went on for a few years. And I, was, I couldn't figure out why I was feeling this way. And I was trying to get on the internet to, you know, I was on the internet trying to figure things out. Um, and at first, I thought it was just a desire to wear women's clothing and feminize myself. But then after a while, I realized I started doing some self-medication with herbals and things like that. And I hit a time in, is it 16, 15 or 16? I was at the store. I went to the store to buy some more herbals to self-medicate and I was changing my body small amounts and I just stopped dead in the store I had the bottle in my hand and I said what am I doing what it, what's happening to me yeah. it took me several months from then but I reached out and found a therapist who dealt with gender issues um see I had always been exposed to um LGBTQ folk as far as gay people and whatnot, because I had several friends that were gay. I was close, a gay man sang at our wedding, you know, so I was not, it was totally natural to me. I'd never met a trans person before. Um, there was a person in the town when I was in a teenager, there was a person in town who was the child of the gas station owner and uh, they were assigned female at birth but they presented male and everybody in town talked about how 
they were the only child of this gas station owner and he had one a son. So that's why this person presented mail. And looking back in retrospect, this was a trans man that was trying to fit in in the community. Um, but anyway, in 16, I finally dialed up the courage to call my therapist or call a therapist, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, she, you know, setting up the appointment, she said, well, what, what's going on? And I said, I think I have gender dysphoria. And that was the first time I've said that aloud to anybody. And um, I went to an appointment with her and I said, the first time I said aloud to any person, I said, I think I'm a woman. And then my next words, am I crazy? Mm -hmm. And she said, no, you're not crazy. We'll, we'll work this thing through. So that's how it all started. Um, yeah. You know, being by myself and just, just looking at it, the construct of what my life was supposed to be, what everybody told me my life was supposed to be, that I was trying to live up to, when all that fell apart, then the real me came out and I could see who I really was. So that's, that's how it came about for me. Yeah, so you both had that kind of period of kind of being alone and, you know, then, you know, you, you went through that kind of stage where you come out and you do a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. yeah. So how does the process of transitioning work in the US? I, I know you're both kind of familiar with how it works in the UK because of the conversations we've had on tea and coffee in the past mm -hmm. with the gender identity clinics and the massive waiting lists we have in the UK. I'm just curious just to understand how, how does that process work in the States? So you do you go and see your general practitioner first? Is that the first step? Some people go to a general practitioner first. There's a lot of different routes you can go about it. Um, most places in the United States follow the WPATH model where you have to um, work with a therapist for a period of time and then the therapist can prescribe can give you a referral to see an endocrinologist or some other doctor to start prescribing you hormones to do a medical transition for me personally i went to see my therapist in december was my first appointment by february we were talking about if I was ready to start medically transitioning. And so by April, I, she, well, by March, she gave me a referral letter that said that she deemed me suffering from gender, gender dysphoria and that I was appropriate to transition mm -hmm. in accordance with the WPATH terms. Yeah. And I took that, she gave me a referral to a gynecologist in Orlando. Um, and the gynecologist um, has a very thriving practice with cis women, but she also has a, a pretty strong practice with trans women, helping them with transitioning. Um, and she prescribes my hormones. And right, so, so this is all done through um, private health insurance, is it? Yes, private health insurance. Well, my therapist, um, the particular therapist I chose doesn't take health insurance. I have to pay cash out of okay, pocket. So, so you pay for someone, some of it's covered by insurance. Yeah. yeah. When I go to see my gynecologist, 
uh, insurance covers it, but I have a copay that goes with yeah. that. So I have a small, you know, $35 and then yeah. the rest is covered by the insurance company. Mm -hmm. So my, so, uh, there's, so there's no G there's no kind of, you know, like in the UK where you have to be sent off to a specialist center. There's none of that. There's no specialist just, center. I mean, but do you have to have the psychologist part? Is that, you know, the therapist well, part? Let, let me, um, do you, do you explain part. yours? Well, I'll, I'll explain my part. And then I think the two of us can both explain a little bit more about what modern things. I mean, again, ours was a little bit, things have been evolving even during the time yes. we've been um, going through transition. Um, mine was somewhat similar. I, I was already familiar with WPATH and I, I, given my life, I knew that I wanted to talk to a therapist anyways. So I found a, a therapist who um, both took my uh, insurance and was familiar with uh, uh, gender issues. And I was um, going to her um, regularly for a while. And uh, it was a little bit longer, I think, than Amy due mm -hmm. to both um, my family situation and the scheduling for the doctor. I, I was having a hard time finding a doctor, but there was a very good one in Washington, DC, who eventually had um, was taking new patients. So yeah. uh, my therapist also gave me a letter, but one, and that's when Amy was on DMs mm -hmm. helping me feel better about going. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the endocrinologist surprised me and that he had, he started asking me about why I wanted to transition and I'd had the letter ready. And I, all I had to do was hand him the letter and say, well, I've been going to therapy and you might want to read. He was prepared to likely um, prescribe me hormones without a letter. So is, is the letter like a, a kind of an official diagnosis of gender dysphoria? It's not, it's not official. I mean, and oh, again, just, the, um, before it, the, the letters only get a little bit more um, specific if you're going to have surgery. There's but, different referral letters to have to start. Okay. And, and, and well, let me finish this. To start hormone therapy, you have to have a referral letter. According to WPATH, you have to have a referral letter from someone who's done an analysis on you. It could be a mental health expert, could be an endocrinologist. Right. But there's another model called informed consent, mm -hmm. where you can go straight to an endocrinologist and say, give me hormones. And you don't so have as long to as you know the risks, et cetera, and everything's exactly. right. yeah. And a lot of uh, people do that in the States um, through um, an organization called Planned Parenthood, which... Um, provides a number of services. I mean, they're, they're known for um, helping people um, with their pregnancies, but um, they, they perform a, quite a number of services. And one of them is, is to work with people on, on hormone therapy. Um, and, and they have a process that, that you, it's informed consent. Yeah, Planned Parenthood does informed consent. They don't go into deep therapy or anything like that. And then the informed consent model is, is there for people that cannot get access to therapy and whatnot. Um, so that referral letter gets you to hormone treatment. 
Yeah, so you're an endocrologist, endocrologist, and yeah. you then get your hormones. Right. And then to have any kind of surgical interventions, mm -hmm. um, the surgeons that perform any kind of um, gender affirming surgeries, they require a second set of letters, a letter from a therapist that's a little bit more detailed, and then a letter from a psychiatrist, somebody with a PhD. Right. So to have any kind of surgeries that I've, I've had, any of my gender affirming surgeries, I had a letter from my therapist. It was a very detailed letter. And then a letter from a psychiatrist that I went to see who specializes in gender issues. And we had a nice talk and she affirmed what my therapist said. So I had the two letters that I could take to my surgeons. And then is that, is that again all covered by health insurance? That's covered by WPATH requirements. Um, um, oh, coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it depends on one's uh, insurance. And again, insurance. Yeah, it depends is, on the insurance policy you have, I guess. And Amy and I both had insurance policies um, due to our employment. Now, um, Amy was working for a company um, who provided health insurance as part of her compensation. Um, I had worked for the U.S. federal government, and they provided that as part of my compensation. And being a retiree, I can yeah, you still got covered. That, I, I could keep that covered, correct? Um, and mine was very similar. Well, we went to the same surgeon, so I, we'd spoken that previously. Yeah. So she required the two letters um, that Amy spoke about through as as she followed WPATH. Um, um, requirements. Now, my original therapist that I kept saying, she um, was a licensed psychologist, and, and but she had a PhD. She satisfied the PhD level, so I yeah. had to find a therapist to get the other letter. And I found one locally, and uh, I got that letter, and then um, the being able to afford surgery. Now that's that's a very interesting topic in the States in itself. It's interesting in that every insurance company has different levels of coverage for gender affirming support. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I worked down in Florida for a company down there, um, I don't believe their health insurance policy covered it. Mm -hmm. there are, as, you, as you say, there are different levels. I think if you, if you were to pay for the higher level, you'd probably get the coverage. Right, and, and that, that affects it. And it's also uh, dependent on the provider, the medical provider or yeah. surgeon, whoever you go to, whether they will take the insurance payment well, in and network, process. Out of network system going on as well. Well, there's the in and, out, in and out of network. Plus there's, for example, our surgeon does not process insurance payments. Okay. So, so I had to get all the paperwork and send it to my insurance company and have them process it. So I had to pay my surgeon out of pocket first, then get the paperwork back. and submit it to the insurance company, get reimbursed. And I got reimbursed maybe half of what she, oh, what, I, what this costs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had fairly good coverage. The, the U.S. federal government policies are pretty good, but I only was reimbursed maybe a third because my policies did not cover um, 
all the surgical procedures I had. So um, right. it varied, but one thing that's pretty common amongst insurance companies is that um, they're very specific on gender surgeries and, and kind of specific on, yeah. on a couple other surgeries that are not related at all. Um, they they want to prevent unneeded surgeries or, or otherwise look at their bottom line that you have to have pre-approval from them that they will they will yes. provide any money. So you have to send in a, a bunch of paperwork on your current health, your mental health, um, what surgeon you're going to, whether they've they've given the nod that that they would do it this whole raft of things. Um, and then they will provide what they call a pre-authorization, meaning they will, mm -hmm. they say, okay, under your policy, you, these are the things that we will cover at, at whatever percentages. Um, and being an out of network surgeon, um, they only covered a certain percentage, not a great percentage. Um, fortunately, the hospital, and the anesthesiologist um, that were covering for the surgeries Amy and I had were in network. And they would bill, like the surgeon herself wouldn't bill the insurance company, but the facility she did the work in would bill the insurance company. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's a maze you have to navigate to get all I mean, the pieces together yeah. to do it right. And it kind of and depends on what insurance you have, which policy you have, whether your employer provides it or not, et cetera, et cetera, can be quite a nightmare, I would think. And, and this is a very interesting thing too, because um, there's a lot of cash outlay up front. You know, I had to come up with a good amount of money up front. We're talking thousands, aren't we? Yes. Yes, tens of thousands. And, but this kind of, kind of plays into late transitioners like ourselves versus people trying to transition in their 20s. Yeah. I'm we are more financially capable of yeah. absorbing that kind mm -hmm. of expenses than someone in their 20s just starting yeah. out of careers that have not been able to save up money and that sort of thing. So how so do younger people afford it? It varies um quite a bit now. Um some people have insurance where almost the entire surgery right. is covered um, through, so this is work, work, through the work. Through their workplace, correct. Yeah. Um, and they, in doing their decision-making, they might have to look for surgeons that are right. in network that take their coverage um, mm. pretty much fully. And I've heard of some people that there wasn't even like a copay or deductible or, or these other we kind have, of. We have one friend locally who's looking into that. And the provider that is in her network to be able to, you know, to cover for the insurance, she has to go to that surgeon that's across the country. She would not be in a position to be able to go to our, the surgeon that she and I went to because of the yeah. cash outlay up front. Um, another thing you asked how, young, young, mm -hmm. how people afford it, oftentimes people take out loans. I mean, yeah. crowdfunding, all mm -hmm. those kind of things come into play. Yeah. And, and unfortunately for a lot of, there are lots of people that would never be able to afford the kind of 
affirming care that we've been able to do. And it, it causes a lot of um, mental anguish that, that um, yeah, they, they feel like they have to transit, you know, they have their transition journey and they feel part of that is uh, uh, surgical in nature, but they have zero resources um, or limited resources to be able to fully do that. And like Amy said, we, um, being older, we, we have uh, uh, access to more credit. Um, with, there's savings from uh, being in the workplace uh, longer, um, things like that, that we could personally draw on. So it's, yeah. So it's, you know, comparing it to, to what you've described in tea and coffee about the, the system you have to go through in the UK, I know it's a very difficult system in there. Our systems that we're working through in some ways is easier in other ways. There's a lot of hurdles we have to jump yeah, through. So it, it kind of sounds like your, your system in terms of the things you have to do to get your treatments is quite straightforward. There's no kind of GIC controlling at all. It's just you have right. to find the correct medical people to get you through the process. Your, yeah. your problems seem to be around how it's all paid for. Yes through insurance and, or other methods and over here in the well, uk we, we have to suffer these terrible queues yeah. with the gic which but when you finally get through it's all paid for by the nhs and you do have the option to go private if you can afford it so yeah it's kind of you you have difficulties in one area and we have it in a different kind of area completely yeah very interesting and then when it comes to changing documentation like passports and driving license and things like that is that based on having got to a certain stage in the process or can you do that whenever you want well, why don't i go first because i my case is a little simpler and then we could go through yours go even though you did first okay so um it varies by municipality mainly states on mm -hmm. what are the requirements to change um certain things. Fortunately, these days, there are, are some excellent websites that guide you in the process of what you want to do step by step. Um, Florida, there's floridanamechange.org. Right. Um, and in, um, in my area, um, um, there was a similar website. Um, who runs those websites that the, the legal the, the yeah so uh, I forget what we'll, it is. we'll 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 find it um the that uh, provides that kind of counseling um so what I look to do is first um, change my name generally the way it works there are many things that work on the state level and then there's things that work on the federal level yeah. So in general terms, you start with locally, you go to the courts and you legally change your names. You don't I'm, have. Sorry, can you can you do that without any kind of medical related evidence? Anybody can go to the court system and, just change, your name. and change your name. Right. I mean, okay. I mean, the fun, funny story is my oldest sister has changed her name four times through marriages and through changing her name after marriage. And there's my no daughter, requirement to keep your name as a male name or anything like that. You don't want to see any kind of transition related. 
I could change medical. my name to XYZ tomorrow if I wanted to. Yeah, I mean, it's the same in the UK, but you have to, you don't have to go to court. You just have to get what's called a deed poll. Right. right. But okay, I guess in the States, you have to go to the courthouse and, and do it. You there. have to go to courthouse or different states have different. different right. Ways. So um, I did have in Virginia, you do have to um, file with the court. Um, it, there's a certain fee and a form and you say, this is my this is my current legal name. This is the name I want it changed to. Um, they don't ask necessarily why, other than there's usually questions that are. There's three or four questions that are universal when you go to name change. Are you changing your name to get out of legal trouble? Are you changing your name to escape debts? And there's, I forget what the third one is, but every court asks that question they have to ask that question right so they they're trying to find people who are trying to evade something right? like, trying to catch people who are changing their identity for bad reasons yes right and but we we all as, generally as transgender people we can certify that we're doing it um for the reason for very right. honest reasons we would That's like to change our name to something that we believe is more suitable is more suitable yeah so um i i could file in virginia for a, a nominal fee of uh, in the tens of pounds dollars um and the court would um look at that um over the process of i think it was only three weeks um at the time again uh COVID has changed a lot of kind of some of the things but um i got something in the mail that says you know the certified that says congratulations your name is Anne," and i was ecstatic you know um but um in other states there's it, it's a little more involved in florida to start with your name change I had to go to the clerk of the court and file a petition for it. Then I had to do fingerprint and background check. The fingerprint and background check was like $40 or $50. Yep. To file for the name change in Florida, in my county, is $400 wow. that I had to come up with. And then it got on the court docket. Once they did the background check, it got on the court docket. And then I had, now it's changed since COVID, but I had an actual appointment before a judge. I went before a judge in his chambers. Luckily enough, it wasn't with full audience, but I sat before the judge and he asked me, you know, those questions. Why are you changing your name and all that? And he said, why are you changing your name? And I looked at him and said, that name doesn't suit me anymore. Mm -hmm. And he smiled because he could see exactly what was happening. Yeah, he knew why. I didn't say I'm trans and I'm changing. I said, that name just doesn't fit. And that day, they produced a document saying, my name has changed. Mm -hmm. So yeah. legally, my name has changed. So yeah, in, in uh, similarity, yes, we, we essentially did a deed poll um, type yeah. arrangement. Yeah. We had new names. Now, in the American system, you, you go from that uh, regional jurisdiction up to the federal level. Um, you produce um, that documentation that says this is your name, and and you go to the, the federal level, which is the Social Security Administration, mm -hmm. and you produce your name change document, and they will change your name in the federal system. Okay, so that will change it within the taxation system and all that. 
Yeah. Yes. But that that would be straightforward if you're just changing your name, but that doesn't change your gender marker. To change your gender marker, Social Security is the first place you start there. And you can change, you know, once you change your gender marker at Social Security, then it filters through the federal system. But to change it, Social Security, you got to have the name change document. Then you got to have another letter from a doctor saying, I had officially been through the Right. sufficient treatment to have yeah. name change uh, gender marker change so that's where you you get that process of usually a, a a trans person who is taking this step these steps in their journey have gone to um some medical provider at the that um usually at the md level or i believe mm -hmm. that that you have a letter from them saying you and again, it's it's by jurisdiction, but in general, the language states um, that Social Security has a very specific format yeah. they want to say, and it's got to be a letter that's written by a doctor, a PhD, and it's got to say that I've received sufficient medical treatment. Doesn't define what that is. Yeah, some sufficient medical yeah. treatment to change my gender. Right, and and but then you've us, changed your name, you've changed your gender marker. It's gone through the federal level government systems right correct and does that then allow you to change your passport well uh, there's more yeah so um we both had letters from our respective doctors saying mm -hmm. that uh, and the doctor could legally do that based on the fact that we were taking hormones they prescribed and it had changed um sufficiently um changed us for gender reasons that we were presenting as a different gender that than we had been. So Social Security takes all that information and they make their determination. And it, it's generally not too bad as long as you have the documents in the formats that they require. Um, yeah, it, it takes um, again the the time frame is not very long, but COVID may have changed it. You know, maybe a month ish over the course of a month, I believe. When I did it, this was before pre-COVID. It was about two or three weeks. So mm -hmm. it, it varies now. So but, you have this new card. It doesn't have your gender on it, but that database for um, tax reasons needs to, to, to match up that if you want a gender marker that's different from the one which you originally filed on, um, you have to have the right documentation. If you just want a name change, that's different. Yeah. So with that brand new card in the mail. Um, then you can go to your local state level again. So we've gone from state to federal and you're coming back to state. Back down, back down state, yeah. And go to the driver's license office. What a joy change, that is, yeah. Yeah, change your driver's license. And right, so do you get on. a new social insurance number? Yes. You get a brand new number? But, okay. no, 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 same, no, same, same number. number. And and okay. unlike uh, some of the numbering in the UK that does have a coding as to gender right. kind of embedded in, that's yeah. not true of the American system. Uh, so we, we retain the same number we were given yes. uh, approximately when we were in our teens. Yeah, right. So we go to the, the driver's, so driver's, license. driver's license office. We get our driver's license changed. And now once you have that driver's license changed, then you can go about all your private things like your bank and everything else. Yeah, so that's the key to everything else, isn't it? Yeah. But then 
from there, you have that documentation. You can apply to, back to the federal government again to get a passport. Or so, update yeah. your old passport details, maybe. Well, yeah. no, in the, in the U.S. federal system, it's not a like a renewal i mean they have they have more of a system where you have to provide more documentation for like a, a if you're a brand new recipient of a passport or if you you haven't had an updated passport in a certain number of years it's kind of lapsed <laughs> oh um, oh yeah so you've got you've got different cases you've got someone who's never had a passport somebody well, who's had a passport but it's expired or someone who's got an old passport with the wrong details on it now so you've got to kind of navigate your way through that i guess I had a passport in my dead name. Yeah. And it had lasted 10 years and then it expired. Yeah. The State Department, which gives you a passport, mm -hmm. gives you a five year grace period where you can do a renewal process instead yeah. of a new passport. Because yeah. if you miss that that grace period, then you got to start from scratch again. Right. So I had an expired passport, I had a five year window. The very last day of that five years <laughs> was when I submitted for my renewal with my name changed. Well, the very but last you, day. But for for um, name change and gender marker on the passport, you have you can't fill out the easiest of renewals. You, there's it's, a certain there's a certain level at which you're kind of kicked back to because they want to have a fair amount of information from you. Um, and again, changing your name on a passport is one thing and a certain level of documentation mm -hmm. to change your gender marker. Um, fortunately, the Department of State is, is fairly lenient right now on, on doing that. There's not a, a great bar to providing documentation. Mm -hmm. And and actually the, the driver's license, uh, having that on the driver's license helps significantly. So, um, getting a passport and your new name and gender marker um providing them the information them issuing it is another level of documentation that we've we've changed now, not everybody does that um i happen to have traveled abroad quite a bit um amy and i have had plans for a while to travel abroad together to visit yes. the UK to and yep. see our friends. Well, come see you. Yeah, <laughs> you and you and a number of other people uh, that you likely know. Um, and and you're gonna have that, to get yourselves a tour bus when you're over here. So you can, <laughs> we um, will. I mean, you know, I, I, if Boris isn't using his bus, I mean, we could rebrand it. I think that bus has been scrapped. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But uh, we this... we went ahead and took that step because and but for me being. I already knew a lot of the State Department things, having worked there for three decades. So, uh, having a passport was part of my normal identification, so to speak. But it, it reaches yeah. a different level of importance to me to have a passport, and and here's why. And we'll take you. We're taking you into the next step yeah. of gender okay. marker and okay. name change. Is birth certificates? Yes. Yes. I Every state in the United States has different rules for birth certificate name change and it's all over the place some of them you just file your gender market change and your name change and they'll change it and they some of them you have to have proof of surgery oh right and they'll change it some of them they'll reissue the birth certificate with your dead name on it crossed out oh. with your new name on it so it's still that there kind of defeats the object of having one doesn't it exactly and then 
my situation, which is very interesting, is that I was born in Cuba. Yes. So you have and a Cuban birth certificate. I have a Cuban birth certificate. Now, for the longest time, I believed I'd never get a change. And did some research and found out that Cuba is actually very trans friendly. So the challenge I have is that the United States and Cuba don't have real good diplomatic relations. So we have to go to the one consulate that Cuba maintains in Washington yeah. to see if I can petition there. Could, so, you actually, could, you, could you go to Canada and do that? Well, um, this is where some of my knowledge, it, know. it, it depends. I know, you, I know to travel to Cuba would probably be quite hard. But it would to, not be a good option be, for me. No. If you went to Canada and traveled to Cuba, it might be a little easier. Well, they, no, it's uh, not that it's not necessarily the, the circuitous route to, to travel there. Actually, no, but if you needed to go there for some reason, you know. It's I could go to Cuba. Oh, you can go. Just might not be able to come back. Yeah. Uh, they they might exert <laughs> some sort of uh you're staying here, girl. Yeah. You, you belong to us. <laughs> but uh it, it varies country to country, but um in general, when you want to petition, um, if you're a citizen of a country and you need to do business um, with that country instead of the country in which you're living, you go to the embassy or, or consulate um, closest to you. And, and again, there may be rules as far as certain business must be done in an embassy versus a consulate because there's usually more services available than embassy and embassies are located in capital cities. There's uh, an O'Cuban consulate in Miami. There's one in, the, in Washington. DC. Yeah, right now, because of the relations uh, issues. Um, it's a the, full embassy. It is because uh, the there, for years after the Cold War, the crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that, they only maintain interest sections. Um, the U.S. had an interest section in the Swiss embassy in Havana, and um, I don't. Um, the Cuban embassy had something, an interest section, and in some other um, yeah. embassies, uh, embassy, uh, some other countries' embassies. So, um, not horrendously long ago, I think under Obama, maybe um, there was a reestablishing of of relations up to the level at which we could have mutual embassies once mm -hmm. more. So, but um, there's only one diplomatic mission for each country. So Havana has an embassy for the United States. Uh, Washington DC has an embassy for Cuba. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's no option to do business um, um, other than to go to the embassy or do a, a possibly correspondence with the embassy. But this is just an example of the intricacies. Yeah. And so therefore, and any occasion, and this is the way it works in the States, in any occasion that I would need to present a birth certificate for proof of identity and all that, mm -hmm. a US passport serves the same thing. Okay. So by having a US passport, I do not have to- well, You don't have to show your birth certificate, yeah. Yeah, typically um, there, there's some restrictions, but if, if you have to provide documentation at a certain level, they oftentimes give you uh, a bit of a menu option on what you have, because again, not everybody has a passport. So they might say you need either a driver's license or state issued ID because not everybody drives and either a birth certificate or a passport. And that would be two very formal levels of identification. 
to yeah. prove you are you. And for Amy and I, who don't have our birth certificates changed, that's what we would typically use yeah. is our changed driver's license and our changed passports. Um, I plan to, to also get my birth certificate changed, but it is in one of those states that require certification that you've had actual surgery, which I can do. Our surgeon gave us some very nice yes. notarized letters. Um, uh, I have a, a documented surgery. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm not going yeah, there. don't go there. Um, so so but, you both you both pretty much done everything you can do paperwork wise, with the exception of your birth certificates. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, again, in in society right now, I mean. Uh, we really don't need the level of birth certificate level document. We in, we intend to, and it's important to well, us. Well, take that back. Um, when I started at the Space Center back in February, mm -hmm. um, they had to run a background check on me. I don't have yeah. like secret clearance or anything like that, but they have to do a detailed background check. I did have to produce my birth certificate. My passport was insufficient. So I had to give them my birth certificate and then I had to show them a whole trail to my name change of who I am now. And did you have to show, you have to prove that you're a US citizen as well? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And, and that was part of the process when, when I was born, my mother's an American citizen, so. So you, you acquired a citizenship automatically? Yes. Well, she registered me with the, at the time, this was pre-Castro, she registered me with the uh, U.S. Embassy in Havana as yeah. a child of a, a U.S. citizen born abroad. So yeah. that made me, it made it automatically, I'm automatically eligible for U.S. citizenship. Yeah. When we traveled here, she formally registered that and I have a formal certificate says I'm a U.S. citizen. So. Right. But um again some of the international uh legalities of things um since she was born in cuba and has a cuban birth certificate if the government of cuba and i'm not saying they would or not or anything i'm not this is just saying there's there's a possibility that if they wanted to exert that you are a cuban citizen because you were born there even though you have u.s citizenship they could they could say, well, you cannot get on a plane or boat or anything back to the United my States. Hands, my understanding of the way that international that Cuba recognizes international laws, I cannot relinquish that citizenship. I am always a Cuban citizen. They don't recognize. You'll always be a dual a dual national. No, I don't think they recognize dual nationals. Oh, they, they don't recognize. Dual status. Uh, the, the United States does. I mean, obviously, the United States, Amy, is a full citizen right. due to birth and documentation yep. and everything. Yep. But that different countries have different definitions, possibly, of who they believe their citizens are. And I believe in the, in, uh, the UK, there's even some discussion in the legislature, the parliament, about who might be considered citizens or not based on you know where they were or where they are now and all, that whole bit so it gets yeah. very political about citizenship and you know sometimes trans people uh or, or others might get in between all the politics yeah you can find yourself very easily falling into kind of very difficult to navigate areas of the law when you're trying to change some of these documents, especially, you know, in my case, I had to change all my Canadian documents as well, because I'm a dual 
Canadian British citizen. Mm -hmm. So once I'd done the UK side of things, then I could do the Canadian side of things. And you know, it was quite a complicated process. I have to do everything in the right steps, right in the right in the right sequence. Um, so I, I've got to this similar stage to you where I've changed everything except my birth certificate. Um, and I've sent off the application for that recently. So hopefully soon that will come through. But I mean, that process in itself is a complete nightmare. The Gender Recognition Act in the UK yes. is, is a horrible thing. Um, and it's, it can be expensive. It's expensive. On... I've probably yeah. paid about £200 to get all the documents in place that I need for that. Um, and then, it, you know, it goes before a panel that you don't meet and they pass judgment on your application. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a fraught kind of process. You know, you don't know if you're going to get it. You know, you may have not provided enough evidence or something. There's no kind of guidelines as to what you have to produce. It's just kind of these very kind of woolly guidelines. Where, you know, you have to provide enough evidence, but it doesn't tell you exactly what to give. So, yeah. Fingers crossed that will be coming within the next few months. Yes. yes. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, do, do you both have kids? I know, um, and you said you had two kids. Amy, do you, do you have any kids? I have two natural daughters and two stepsons. Um, okay. So how was, how was their reaction to you both transitioning? Were they, were they supportive? And, you know, wider family members, brothers and sisters and things like that, were they... Were they all supportive? My, my children are 100% supportive and accepting, and my grandkids, it's like no difference to them. I'm still the same person. It's just, yeah. um, my siblings are, yeah. they still dead name me and misgender me constantly, and they don't, they don't, they don't recognize it. I mean, they talk to me, but they don't recognize who I am. Yeah. So, yeah, that's. My father accepted me. He still dead names me and misgenders me, but he's 94 years old, so he can get away with that. <laughs> I give him a pass. To, yeah, to we do him, make exceptions for the elderly people. Yes, cool. You know, he knows that I, uh, I being uh, first your your girlfriend and now your fiance. Yes. Um, he's aware that I'm I'm trans also, but uh, and my dad loves Anne. He thinks she's wonderful. Of yeah, course, that's right. She uses the correct <laughs> name and pronouns, and and is never asked otherwise. Um, to to him, I am exactly who I am, and it's wonderful that I I find that level of acceptance. And I and it's it's just strange sometimes when you hear family members um, not use one's chosen name and pronouns it, it, it depends on the situation yes i have two uh grown daughters and and they currently fully accept me and um but one funny thing is um that for both of us all our immediate children still call us by the uh, uh dad mm -hmm. using the the american you know yeah. father yeah. um uh, nickname um but that's that's who they grew up with we were they, they, my my okay my great my stepsons which i call my sons because i raised them from very young um they had always addressed me by my nickname before and they made a change to address me as amy and that wasn't a hard thing for them to do at all 
my daughters requested that they specifically asked if they could continue to call me dad. And I said, that's fine. As long as you understand dad's a girl. And they were like, yeah, hundred percent. So it's correct gender and dad in the same sentence can sound weird. And I've been in public places where, <laughs> where well, they, you know, we just have to remember that some dads are trans women. You know? Yeah, exactly. And so it was, it's cool. Mm-hmm. So. so we have, we have good relations with our children and um, it's, Fabulous. it's very heartwarming that, mm-hmm. uh, we can be ourselves and have that kind of relationship with our children still. Yeah, that's that's great to hear, really. Interesting stories. When I started coming out to my family, my youngest daughter was the first one I came out to uh, before I came out with to my first wife. Um, I wanted her to be able to to know me, to support my and at the time I say my wife, we were still, we were married up until she passed away, but we were separated. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I came out to my daughter, you know, met her for breakfast and I'm telling her how it felt and all that. And I told her that I'm trans. And she said, well, you know, dad, I always knew you were different. I just thought you were gay, but this is cool. <laughs> that was her reaction that's a great reaction yeah i wish we were all like that yeah. as it turns out i'm still gay but... <laughs> not in the way in which you're partially she, partially right i do have to ask one question you know with uh with amy being from cuba you must be the chef in the house right you're the cook me yes you must be yeah because yes. I know when I was living in Miami, Cuban food is the best. Uh-huh. Yeah, we re- recently visited some friends from West Palm, um, and I took Anne to a really a really good Cuban restaurant and started her. T- I co- I've cooked a few things Cuban for her, but not many things. And uh, so I introduced her to a few things. Well, we had a lovely meal with, uh, with some friends of ours, and um, yeah, the food was spectacular. Yeah. You know, the, the, the rice and black beans, absolutely delicious. Uh-huh. The uh, chicken a la plancha with garlic, amazing. What else was there? The Tostinos, is it Tostinos? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, there's so many. Mm-hmm. What's that What's that kind of garlicky sauce you, that goes with that? I can't remember what it's called. Uh-huh. Yeah, amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's yeah. so many amazing Cuban dishes. <laughs> that, was one of the, yes. that was one of the most... Uh, enjoyable parts of living in Miami. <laughs> well, I'm originally well, from the Cuban American, I'm, I'm originally from the American Southwest and, you know, uh, there's this very similar Spanish patriarchal kind of thread and that, that kind of linked us, but fortunately she likes, uh, you know, what we would normally call Mexican food. Some people call Tex-Mex or Tex-Mex, otherwise yeah. it's not, you know, food from Mexico per se, but, you know, Southwest, um, Mexican influence cooking, and she likes that too. So we've mm-hmm. we've uh, fed off each other's. Uh, yes, well, that, that's interesting. You know, we're focusing on the fact that I'm Cuban American, um, but Anne is also of Spanish descent, descent too. All right. So you yes. both have. Uh... Oh yes, you're you're what third generation in this country. No, it's it's further generations, but um, but her family came the Spaniards. They came over to this American Southwest, 
to set up lots of uh, ranches and plantations there. So my family came from Spain to Cuba and hers went to the American Southwest. So well, I think I think the pair of you should get together and write a Spanish cookery book. <laughs> <laughs> Sell it to us Brits so we can improve well, our cooking over here, you know? I think, you know, maybe, uh, maybe play off on uh, us being in the community, certain, you know, community cooking rather than lots of people have done Cuban cooking or American Southwest. Trans-Cuban, yeah. I mean, trans-Cuban. Trans-Cuban. Trans-Latin or something. Come up with a, you know, a cool name for it. I think that would go really well. I'd definitely buy it. So I think we've gone over our hour slightly. But... <laughs> slightly. <laughs> Sorry if we've, if we've disrupted your lunch with all this food talking. Thank you so much for coming on today and having a chat. It was really enjoyable. Well, great, we enjoyed great to talk to you. Thank you. We very much enjoyed visiting with you, and I hope we didn't talk too much. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just it, I really enjoy doing these podcasts because, you know, everybody has these really interesting stories. And I think it helps the community, you know, to understand, you know, how things come about, um, you know, what we all have to deal with. We're so, both yeah. very supportive of the of your podcasting and the things you. Oh, do. you've been listening to a few, have you? <laughs> uh, a bit, and uh, we're we're big fans, and uh, we thank, thank you, you for for what you do. Well, thank you very much. So I have one final question, and you can both have different answers if you want. You. At the end of the podcast, there's the, the end of podcast jingle. And your choice is cow, goat, or yay. Oh, and wow. It's just a, it's a, a cow, a goat, or a yay. It's right at the end of everybody's podcast. And it, it's just like an, a finishing jingle. So you can have a cow mooing or a goat doing whatever goats do. Or you can just have somebody that says yay. I mean, that's it. It's just it's your choice. So we have to we have to make a jingle using one of no, those. No, you just have to tell me which one you want, and then I'll. Oh, okay. Oh, it's pre-recorded. Well, okay. it's yay for me. Yay, yay for yay you. That I get to spend this time with you. Yay. So two yays, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Two yays. Okay. Very good. Thank you very much. We'll sign us off there, and hopefully see you soon on tea and coffee, which is probably where we all met, and we should probably have spoken about that a little bit as well a really super helpful community of trans people who come together and, and share things. I mean, I think that's where we met, isn't it, originally? It is, and uh, it's it's a wonderful group. That, it is. Uh, and that they're welcome, welcoming of uh, uh, people outside the borders, us, us <laughs> colonials. Yeah, even even uh, Americans are welcome. Even Americans, <laughs> you know, not just the... Uh, the Canadians and Australians and whatever, yeah. you know, they, the, us who actually broke away. The, yes. Well, actually, I think it came about when it went virtual was yeah. such the perfect time because we're in the middle of the pandemic yeah. and there was so much connection that we were able to have. I've met and, so many and, people via that. Yeah. You know, it's great. Yeah. And, and then to reach internationally and talk to so many people internationally, that's, that's just yeah. so cool. It is. Okay, so I'll sign us off there. Okay. Bye. 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 See you. Yay! Yay! <laughs>